So when it comes to the kind of mysteries that we talk about on our podcast, there's one that's sort of a granddaddy of them all. If you wanted to rank it up there with the likes of Bigfoot and, and, and other topics like, like ours, and that is the Bermuda Triangle. And I have to say, this is one of those mysteries that started me down this road of the unexplained as a child. I mean, I would read about the, the Bermuda Triangle, a place on Earth where ships and planes and people are just seemingly lost, never to be found again, and, and with no apparent explanation. And that is our, our topic for this evening's episode. We're going to talk about the Bermuda Triangle. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. The region known as the Bermuda Triangle, and also at times called the Devil's Triangle, is uh, in the North Atlantic. It's an area where strange events and unexplained disappearances have occurred, supposedly, for as long as man's been charting the ocean. Reports of strange occurrences are documented as dating back to the mid-19th century. And this is an area of ocean represented by three points. Miami, San Juan, Puerto Rico, and Bermuda. Depending on who you talk to and where the actual borders of yeah, I was going to say it varies quite yeah. a lot actually. And yeah. and when I was doing research, but but the area encompassed by the the Bermuda Triangle again, depending on who you talk to, mm-hmm. it's either five hundred thousand to one point five million square miles. That's exactly what I came across. Now you consider that five hundred thousand to a million five hundred thousand. Yeah, that's it's a one to three ratio of size. That, yeah, that's, so. That's a big size variance. It really yeah, it's is. It's one of those things where, again, it, depending on who you talk to, you, you've got quite a range there. Big. Now, of course, you're probably familiar with, with the Bermuda Triangle if you're listening to us talk right now. Again, an area where unexplained disappearances and, and, and the like happens. Now, possible explanations that have been floated over the years for the Bermuda Triangle and the activity. And, and this is one that I, I had not even thought about and had believe I had not read before. Leftover technology from Atlantis. I had come across that. So I um, think it's very intriguing. It's an interesting idea. Portal to a possible parallel universe that connects to ours. Uh, that, I kind of like that idea. That's kind of interesting. It would explain some of the strangeness of some of the supposed incidents. Well, especially the the entire vanishings of ships. Like they, they don't even find a lot of these shipwrecks and plane wrecks. Now there's thousands of them littering the floor of the ocean, but it's hard to pinpoint one and actually ever yeah. find it. Yeah. You know, they'll find multiple others, but not that one. Sea monsters, which I would, oh, yeah, yeah. I like that oh, one. Oh yeah. 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 Time warps and reverse gravity fields. Now those are the crazy, you know, conspiracy theory explanations. Well, but the time warp, maybe the electrical fields, if there was something left over, could explain some with the lost city of Atlantis, uh, magnetism issues, messing with compasses and stuff. So speaking of compasses. A list of possible natural explanations include compass variations. Mm-hmm. There are theories that exist that say there are localized magnetic anomalies that disrupt magnetic compasses in the, the Bermuda Triangle. But it's also possible that navigators fail to account for the Agonic Line. Now, if you're not familiar with the Agonic Line. I am not. That is a place on Earth where true north and magnetic north actually align. 
when you're relying on a magnetic compass, it doesn't point to true north, except for in these, these where the agonic line is. Hmm. That's been the supposed culprit of many disappearances is that people fail to account for that dis- uh, disconnect in, in where they think their compass is pointing versus where it actually is. You have the Gulf Stream, which is they used to explain why you don't find so much wreckage. In essence, it's a major current. and It acts as a river under the ocean. And so it does carry floating objects at a decent speed out to a different part of the ocean. So it might explain why you don't find shipwrecks, why you don't find plane debris. Uh, human error. Most official explanations just attribute it up to human error. You know, people aren't perfect. We make mistakes. And sometimes those mistakes are catastrophic. Violent weather is, is a very good potential explanation. I've even heard electromagnetic storm. There are lots of hurricanes, lots of tropical storms in the region. They're fairly common. Most tropical storms, if you look at, at you know hurricane maps and such, they pass right through there. Any Basically, any storm that's going to hit the, the east coast of Florida it's is going, going to right pass up through, through there. there. Yeah. Prior to satellite technology, ships would sometimes have very little warning for some of these storms. Uh, there's uh, what they call the, the downdraft of cold air. It's a condition where cold air descends down to the surface of the ocean. They describe it as almost bomb-like. This cold air descends so quickly. And when it hits the surface of the ocean, it explodes outward, creating a squall line, which if you're familiar with that, it's like the storm mm-hmm. line. That uh, could also explain, I would think, some of the fog that, that, that yeah. seems to be, you know, a lot of recollections to the stories are like the strange fog came upon us immediately, yeah. you know, kind of deal. Yeah. And, and these, these squall lines can have winds of up to 170 miles per hour. So that's, you know, hurricane force wind in this, this draft of cold air. Uh, rogue waves, if you've never heard of a rogue wave, it's a massive wave that can reach heights of a up to a hundred feet and it, they just kind of sometimes seem to just show up again. That's the term rogue wave. You can that have is rough the stuff seas. of nightmares right there. Yeah, I mean, how do you react to something like that as a captain a, with a ship? I believe the movie is the perfect storm yes. where it shows the ship going George straight Clooney. up the, the wave. And finally, one last natural reason for, for possible sinkages, uh, methane hydrates, which I've seen this on Mythbusters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but bubbling methane from the ocean floor creates a, a zone of ocean, if you will, where boats and such become less buoyant. Basically, they just fall into the ocean. And then if you've seen the episode of, uh, I was going to say Ghostbusters. <laughs> if you've seen the episode of Mythbusters, I mean, they they demonstrated where they ran water and they bubbled up underneath a boat. And, and a little model boat just dropped right through the water. Well, and they have tested the methane levels and definitely that Bermuda area does have it. It can be picked up with the detectors and such. And I've got a story I'll share later on that we believe now explained that in particular was the the stop of a Navy ship called the Cyclops. Now, if we're going to talk this much about the Bermuda Triangle, there better be something weird that happened there. And so now, you know, now that we've tried to explain why it happens, here is is the reason why we're so interested. We're going to start talking about some events and some of these disappearances. The first documented event in the Bermuda Triangle is actually reported by Christopher Columbus as he was sailing to the New World. And him and his crew reported seeing a great flame of fire that crashed into the sea one night. Now, we would hypothesize that that was probably a meteor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also. Or a UFO. It could have been. <laughs> and then he, uh, they report that a strange light appeared on the, in the distance a few weeks later. Uh, and he also noted that there were erratic compass readings in this region of the ocean. So he was experiencing that. One of the things that uh, has been brought up a lot, again, it's especially with the compasses and stuff. Now, you got to keep in mind, that's all really ships had for m- most of shipfaring life. It wasn't until like the mid to late 80s that like GPS coordinates 
and uh, other stuff started kind of coming on as, as alternate ways. Uh, so if you only have a compass and you start getting into magnetic pulls or whatever and losing your compasses, that's huge. I mean, that, that's your main tool that you use. There was, uh, it wasn't Mythbusters, but it was a similar group online. They decided they wanted to test that theory. They had talked to a, cop, a couple of uh, mineral experts who had went along the coasts of various areas in Puerto Rico and Florida, where the Bermuda Triangle is said. And uh, there's a great deal of what's called black sand. And the black sand is actually rocks that are magnetized. And obviously a few grains of sand is not going to do much. But if you had a, a larger stone, you could put that next to a compass and very quickly prove that it spun. So these guys, quite clever as they were, I thought, they went out to a junkyard where they have the big uh, electromagnetic cranes that pick up cars and you know move them around to crush the cars. And they decided they uh, were going to test that theory with a simulated large amount of electromagnetic, something that could lift like three tons and see effects on a compass. Obviously, they got it close. The compasses was spinning around like a propeller. I mean, it was crazy. However, even with that type of magnetism at a distance of only 24 feet, the compasses settled back down and was normal. In the Bermuda Triangle, it kind of shocked me. There were a lot of areas where the water depths may only be three to four foot. I mean, literally, you could get out and walk around. Obviously, there's some others that are hundreds of feet deep. But to me, that was kind of an interesting to help put things in perspective. If, if there was, uh, let's say, a, 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 an area, a bed of rocks that were magnetized and the ship was 50 foot above that, I wouldn't. Wouldn't expect that to have any more pull than something they used to lift three tons and at only 24-foot distance. You wouldn't think. It, yeah. I mean, so, I don't know. To me, when I first started researching this, it was like, ah, oh, I think I think there's a lot to that. And then as I dove down that rabbit hole and, and kind of researched it myself a little bit more and, and got some more information, I, I, I'm not really a believer in so much of that. You would have to be so close to affect those compasses unless... It came from the storms and stuff like you mentioned, and somehow the electromagnetic is coming down uh, from a storm or in the sky or causing the electromagnetic fog. So I just thought that was kind of interesting tidbit to throw in. Well, you can't forget that agonic line, again, where magnetic north and true north line up. Very true. So even, you know, I mean, just a simple, very small variation. You know, if you're a degree or two off and you're heading and you're traveling hundreds of miles, I mean, that... You, you don't end up, up where you think you're yeah, going. that adds up. up. It does add up. The HMS Atalanta. She was serving as a training ship when she and her entire crew disappeared. Uh, she set sail on January 31st, 1880 from the Royal Naval Dockyard in Bermuda, and she was presumed to have been sunk in a powerful storm. Now, a former crewman of the Atalanta, able seaman John Varling, he testified that he found the Atalanta to be exceedingly crank, I'm guessing that's terminology of the time, uh, as of being overweight. She rolled 32 degrees once, and Captain Starling is reported as having been heard to remark that had she rolled one degree more, she must have gone over completely. Wow. So apparently this ship was of, of a design of whatever that, that she just wasn't, you wasn't know. well designed. Wasn't well designed from the Kind of like of an apple floating in the water or something there. So uh, uh, gunboat Avon, which arrived at Portsmouth on April 19th, reported seeing immense quantity of wreckage floating about the region of the Azores. The official story is that the loss of the Atlanta was blamed on taking so many green sailors out without enough trainers on board. 
So they just they were not crewed for for that voyage. wasn't ready. But for again, it. another ship just totally disappeared. Now they did find wreckage in this case. In a lot of cases, they never even find wreckage. And I think that's very strange. No wreckage. I mean, you would think, especially the larger the ships go down, there would be trash, life preservers. I mean, chairs, something, something that would be left. Yeah, you would think. So in 1881. Sailing ship Ellen Austin found a derelict vessel floating about in the region of the Bermuda Triangle. Ooh, ghost ship. They came up next to it, and uh, there's a lot of anecdotal uh, stories in the paper and such. As a matter of fact, there's not even ever been an official listing for any other ship. Now, the Ellen Austin is known to exist. She was documented in registries, but any other vessel she may have been in contact with. So, But anyway, the Ellen Austin pulled up next to this uh, abandoned vessel. They put a crew on board with the intent of sailing her to port. Now, there are two versions of the story after this. Either one, the vessel was lost in a storm, never to be seen again. Or two, it was found again without the Ellen Austin's supplementary crew. I read about that and in that story. So they put new crew on. We're going to try to bring this, this lost ship, this wayward ship into port. The ship they refound, but there was nobody on it. So what did they do? They put more people back on the <laughs> ship again. And it's like, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. Yeah, I did hear a version where another ship found it, put another crew on it. So. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? So the 542-foot-long naval cargo ship USS Cyclops. Oh, yes. She sank or was lost at sea with 306 crew, 8,100 tons of manganese ore. On March 4th, 1918, she departed from Barbados for Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, now, she had stopped in Barbados because the water level was over the Plimsoll line. Again, another naval term I was not familiar with, but you'll, you'll automatically know what it is when I describe it. A series of hash marks on the hull to tell you where she's sitting in the water. I guess the top one of those is the Plimsoll line, and when you get past that one, it's an indicator that you're overweight and you're dangerously close to losing your ship. So and investigations in Rio proved that she had uh, been loaded properly and secured properly. So they didn't think that there was any danger from being overloaded or from the cargo not being stored properly. On March 10th, a violent storm swept through the Virginia Capes area. And the theories go that a possible combina- combination of a being overloaded, documented engine trouble before she left port originally, and the bad weather may have sunk the ship. An extensive naval investigation concluded many theories have been advanced, but none that satisfactorily account for her disappearance. Now, with this story, I thought one of the things that was uh, interesting, which I'll kind of veer off into one of the theories, there was no SOS call. Yeah, that was literally the next line of my notes. She never sent an SOS. Obviously, as you stated, it uh, this ship had, had many purposes through its life, but at this point in time, it was loaded with 11,000 uh, tons of magnes uh, aboard, which is flammable. And one of the theories that later come out with research and investigation was the methane gas that was leaking up out of possibly the bottom of the ocean, uh, which is also flammable, possibly came up around wrong, absolute wrong place, wrong time. The ship sailed through it with the boilers. Obviously, there's flame. Thought that could have ignited, which then set off a chain reaction to then ignite the magnesium. And they said that would have taken literally split seconds, which might explain why nobody got a chance to to get an SOS call. And that was documented, I think, in, in another case where a, a sailor had seen similar situation where the, the ore had caught fire. And also, I believe it is corrosive. So metal beams and such. Yeah, that could know. explain a lot. Now, obviously, that would that would essentially be like a bomb literally going yeah. off. Again, you would expect to see something 
trash debris, even though well burnt, maybe spread to, you know, yeah. wherever. And again, this is one of those ones where there was an extensive search and nothing, no wreckage. nothing was found. So I've had a couple of interesting quotes about this particular disaster. President Wood- Woodrow Wilson would go on to say, only God and the sea know what happened to the great ship. And Santa Fe magazine of the time was quoted as saying, she just disappeared as though some gigantic monster of the sea had grabbed her men and all and sent her into the depths of the ocean. And I love that magazine quote. Yeah. I mean, it's like, that is the stuff of monsters and myths. I mean, literally. And, and even to this day, you know, she, th- this event has the distinction of being the single largest loss of life in U.S. naval history, having no direct involvement in combat. Right. Now, there were other ships built similar to the Cyclops. She was considered to have two sister ships that both vanished similarly without a trace on nearly the same identical route as the Cyclops had taken. So, while returning from Rio de Janeiro to Portland, the ship Carol A. Deering, which I believe was a, like a yacht, on January 31st, 1921, uh, she was found abandoned and derelict off of Cape Hatteras. All cells were set, and she was sitting on the outer edge of the Diamond Shoals, which these shoals extend, I guess, offshore from Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, for a ways. Yeah, well, they, this air region was notorious for shipwrecks for centuries and has earned the nickname Graveyard of the Atlantic. So ships I, are commonly found here. Yep, yep. They tried to board her, but it was difficult. I guess that when they finally got on board, they discovered that all 11 crewmen and the captain were missing. They were never to be found again. The lifeboats were also missing, so it does look as if they evacuated. There was prepared food in the galley. Now, so, that seems to be another very common, when they do find these ghost ships, which... By that term, I simply mean just unmanned ships, not yeah. necessarily specters hanging off of them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like food was prepared still on the table, like playing cards, like they were playing yeah. games. But yeah, that's one of the cases where the uh, the rafts, lifeboats were departed. A lot of times it's like literally the people just yeah, vanished. Just I mean. Uh, another possible explanation is they say she may have fell victim to piracy, which in the early days of the Bermuda Triangle, that possible explanation comes up quite a bit. Yes, yes, indeed. Now, here's one that's kind of near and dear to my heart. We talked about this before we got started. One of my one of my favorite stories, because there's just so much to it. It's so well documented and yet still so mysterious. And that is uh, Flight 19. Yes. Uh, December 5th, 1945. Five Navy gunmen TBF Avenger bombers with a total crew of 14 men, took off from Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale, never to be seen again. Now to interject here, for those of you who may not have known, Flight 19 simply meant that was the 19th flight of the day over that exact area. So they were going to be conducting mock bombing runs. Uh, These practices were led by Lieutenant Charles C. Taylor. He's listed as the flight leader on this particular flight. Each plane was fully fueled and had completed thorough pre-flight checks. These are documented. We know that these planes were fueled up and ready to go. Mm-hmm. And it was discovered that all planes were missing an internal clock. And their route was intended to help teach them dead reckoning principles and involve the calculating of many variables, one of which was elapsed time. So they needed a way of keeping track of time. It was important to their plan. Sure. So it was assumed that each man would have a watch. So they, they weren't too worried about the internal clocks. Was that a factor in the disappearance? You know, who's to say? They carried out their practice bombing run mission, and and we know they did that because at 3 p.m., a pilot requested permission to drop his last bomb. So it's documented that they did their their practice runs, and they had dropped all their bombs. So practice run essentially was successful. Yep. Everything was done that needed to be done, and it was on their way back. Yep. They were were coming back. So later on, an unidentified crewman asked Powers, who was one of the students, for his compass reading. So Powers responded, I don't know where we are. We must have got lost after that last turn. 
Lieutenant Cox, one of the other flight instructors, he gets on the radio. He says, this is FT-74, identifying his particular plane in the group. He's like, plane or boat calling powers. I, please identify yourself so someone can help you. So he tries calling again. And a few moments later, Lieutenant Taylor responds. And if you remember, Taylor is the, the, flight, the flight leader. leader. Taylor prompts uh, Powers to call out uh, FT-28. This is FT-74. What is your trouble? And Taylor responds, both of my comses are out, and I'm trying to find Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I'm over land, but it's broken. I'm sure it's the keys, but I don't know how far down, and I don't know how to get to Fort Lauderdale. Now, again, both compasses were awry. Yeah. So the main compass, you know, it's out, and your backup compass, is that, that seems strange. And he's over land at this point. Yeah, he, he thinks he's see, in the Florida he Keys. He believes he sees the Florida Keys below him. So. Cox informs the Naval Air Station that they were from. They were lost, and then he advises Taylor to put the sun on his port wing and just fly north up the coast. Fly north up the coast, you're gonna, you know, yep. you're gonna eventually get where you're going. the The base operations asked if Taylor's plane had standard IFF, which is identification friend or foe transmitter. It's just a simple transmitter that airplanes used, I think, back in in that time frame. To uh, it, it simply does what it says. It identifies whether yep. they're friend or foe. Just to identify, they could have used this transmitter to help locate the the flight to kind of triangulate their location. They wouldn't have been able to pinpoint where Flight 19 was, but they would have been able to say, okay, hey, you're in this area. This message was not immediately acknowledged by Taylor, but he later indicated that, yes, he did have it and it was activated. They, no one on land could pick up his IFF signal. They didn't know where he was. They couldn't find him. As far as they were concerned, they were lost. At 4.56 p.m., Taylor is again asked to turn on his IFF transmitter if he had one. He doesn't immediately acknowledge that, but a few minutes later, he advises his flight to change course due east for 10 minutes. Someone else on the radio responds, damn it, if we could just fly west, we would get home. Head west, damn it. So there's already an argument now about where they're at, where mm -hmm. they need to go. Now, I had come across something, and I had never saw this before, so I'm asking if you came across it. These are Navy planes. Yes. However, at this point, at that exact point where they start arguing, I found two articles that referenced it was a mix of Marines and Navy personnel flying them. I know it may be possible, but I didn't find that in my research. And that's why they thought that could have led because, I mean, let's face it, I have family that's in the military <laughs> and sometimes different branches do kind of yeah. buck heads, you know. But yeah, that was, that exact point was where one of the Marines was basically saying, damn it, pay attention to me. I know what's yeah. going on. And the Navy was like, no, pay attention to me. I'm your flight leader. Yeah, I could, I could see that if that was the case, you know, kind of. I hadn't come across that ever before, so well, it was as, interesting. As someone who was kind of, you know, I mean, we have a military base not too far away where I went to school. Yeah. Uh, there was, you know, when well, when I went to night school, there was a lot of different military and, you know, different branches, butt heads. They do. I mean, so. it's by design. So the weather began getting worse, and as it did, radio contact started to become spotty. Now, at this point, it was believed that the aircraft were more than 230 miles out to sea east of Florida. So flying east would not have helped them at that point no, if they're already all. east of Florida. <laughs> So Taylor radios in, we'll fly 270 degrees west until landfall and or running out of gas. And then he requested a weather check at 524. By 550, several land-based radio stations had figured the Flight 19 was north of the Bahamas and well off the coast of Central Florida. So they were out at sea. At 6.04 p.m., Taylor radios to his flight, holding 270. We didn't fly far enough east. East. So it sounds like he's heading the wrong direction. Yeah. And we may as well just turn around and fly east again. East. He keeps saying east. Like, where does he think he's at? Uh, so the weather by now was even worse. Sun had set. It's dark. It's stormy. It's 6.20 p.m. Taylor's last message is received. All planes close up tight. We'll have to ditch unless landfall. When the first plane drops below 10 gallons, we all go down together. 
which seems reasonable. We'll yeah. put, they put all Stay the plans together. down together. Now, this is the official documentation. If you listen to the legends of Flight 19, there is one more received call or two more received calls. Somewhere not long after this, Taylor gets on the radio and he says, like, the world's gone upside down. The ocean is white. We don't know what's going on. The repeat, the ocean is white. It is not green. Right. So he, I mean, what's going on? Yeah. And then hours later, hours after they should have been lost at sea, after they should have run out of gas, there's one more call from yeah, Taylor. It's like, there's no way they could still be up in yeah. the air and they receive a call. And there's one more call from Taylor. And I don't remember the wording of it, which I don't know if you have that or I not. Do, I don't have that. But there's one more call and, and essentially, you know, everybody's like, oh, these guys should have been yeah. on. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of speculation there, and to me, I'm not military. I've got family that is, but I personally am not. To me, staying together, I think, would be basic training comprehension. Yeah. However, there's a lot of stories going back to where I had mentioned before, especially if there was two different branches of the military clashing. They were obviously scared. They were starting to clash, fight even a little bit that some of the planes did veer off. And that's why we've never found all of them is they may have went their different ways. Well, if I remember correctly, they have found one of these at the bottom of the ocean since then, okay. but just one. I had read that they thought they had it may be a different instance and they brought it up and it was similar, but it didn't match. And, and that may be what I'm thinking of. But your story may be a little bit different, but uh, yeah, I, I can tell you this. Nobody has found all five planes. Yeah. Uh, you know, put together. So, the, you know, there's a lot of speculation with what happened, especially if you take into effect that that last radio call occurred what should have been well after all of them ran out of gas and wasn't even in the air anymore. And again, that's part of the legend of Flight 19. Now, that's not officially documented Correct. anywhere. Correct. So, Correct. Now, uh, investigators included that Lieutenant Taylor mistook small islands offshore for the Florida Keys after his compasses stopped working. So he was not actually in the Keys when he thought he was. And... Uh, the official explanation is listed as cause on unknown by the Navy. Now, there were two rescue planes sent out to find Flight 19, and one of those planes, a PBM Martin Mariner, and its 13-man crew also disappeared. Yes. Now, again, at this point, like we said earlier, it was stormy weather. The Mariner, Mariners themselves had a reputation for exploding when they were full, like their, their reserves were full of oil and gas. Well, that's safe. Yeah, yeah. So, now, a tanker off the Florida coast did witness an explosion and did find oil slicked ocean. And, uh, uh, actually after this incident, all PBM Martin Mariners were grounded by the Navy because they were like, well, they're not safe. So this one probably exploded due to the reputation, but again, they did lose another plane in pursuit of flight 19. So after weeks of searching, the Navy official report declares it was as if they had just flown off to Mars. So the wording that they sometimes use. Yeah. It's like uh, to Mars. Now I'm going to jump in here. One of the theories here was brought up was, uh, hypoxia and that's essentially oxygen deprivation. They believe that this could have caused some of those symptoms, especially like where the flight leader Taylor kept saying, east, we're going east, we need to go more east. And obviously east was taking them further out. It, it can manipulate you, confuse you to even where the simplest tasks aren't so simple. Now they have tested, this seems to take place, especially at like 20,000 uh, feet or 25,000 feet. However, it should be noted that altitudes of like even half as much of that can cause it. So now we're at 10,000 feet can cause it in some subjects, but this is why commercial airlines, especially now maintain at 8,000 feet or lower. And these planes were nowhere near flying at those altitudes. 
However, hypoxia is a very real fear, even for pilots today. Uh, however, obviously today we've got a lot more technology, a little bit better understanding, or, or so we think. Generally speaking, oxygen levels at 90% can start to cause impairment. 90%. So it's only a 10% loss. Oxygen levels below 50% can literally cause death. Well, and I hate to tie this into what's been going on around the world, but I've actually learned quite a bit about oxygen levels with the whole COVID thing. The COVID, yes. And so, yeah, there are people that ate, what is I think, 80 or 75% and the hospital surprised they even showed up, like they could, that they could walk. It's a miracle, like, yeah, that you're even functioning. You know, some of the symptoms to recognize would be extreme red skin. It's almost like a drunken state where they'll be laughing at at stuff uh, hysterically. A lot of confusion. Uh, Unable to get words out that seem to be on the tip of their tongues. Unable to finish sentences. At even 73, 72% oxygen. Patients stated that they they felt they were doing good. However, they were unable to identify simple shapes in one closed uh, laboratory experiment. And I have to say, I did watch this, and it was quite <laughs> funny. They had two military men, retired, but uh, still, you know, 40s, 50s, uh, went in, and they volunteered to do a test. And basically, they put them in this enclosed room, sucked the oxygen out, monitored it. They, of course, had heart monitors, and they, they was very closely monitored. Awful. And uh, they give them coloring books and those little uh, plastic balls that, at least I grew up with as a kid, that has the different shapes. You know, put the star in the star shape and the circle <laughs> in the circle shape. And, you know, of course, at, at first they're at hundred percent oxygen. They're like, oh yeah, this is no problem at all. They're coloring. It was, Keep it between the lines. You know, they're joking and everything on the coloring books. And then they drop down to like that 75% and they just start laughing and everything. I mean, like one guy nearly falls out of his chair. He's <laughs> laughing so hard. And the other guy is like, he's laughing. He's like, why are you laughing? And he's <laughs> laughing so hard at this point, you know, the, the, the medical team on the other side of the glass is saying, okay, now if you would pick up the example, the, the star shape. And they're like, oh, okay. Yeah. We've got this. This is no problem. They pick up the circle and one of them picks up the square. And then they're like, it won't fit. And they're trying to put the wrong shapes and it's child's toy. I mean, that's intended for three, four, five-year-olds. It was very evident and they would stop them and they said, well, how do you think you're doing? Well, I don't think we've missed anything so far. You know, so that does kind of lie some credibility if hypoxia was taking place, maybe there was a gas leak into the cockpit. Would there have been a gas leak in all five planes? I don't think so. Yeah. But again, a, a solo flight uh, with maybe exposure to gas or exhaust into the cockpit, especially back at that time frame. I mean, you're talking about a, a ship that was known to blow up that they sent out <laughs> to, go, to, to go find. I mean, that could, that could explain uh, definitely more than a few things. You know, in flight 19, they don't believe that was the case, uh, because they were flying at only about 3000 feet altitude. Again, if it was an event of a gas leak or something into a cockpit, surely it wouldn't have been all five planes. Yeah. But, um, I don't know that, that led some credibility and especially watching these two poor guys that volunteered (laughs) trying to color. They couldn't, they couldn't identify like the yellow crayon from the blue crayon. They couldn't put shapes in. And if you're up there flying a plane, I mean, that's definitely a lot more technical. And you wouldn't know that you're struggling. Yeah. That was the, yeah. the really scary part. So on January 30th, 1948, British South American Airways Star Tiger. I thought you would like this. This is a Tudor Mark IV aircraft. Ooh, a Tudor. 
Uh, she disappeared from radar just before landing. At 3.04 a.m., the crew requested a radio bearing from Bermuda. However, the signal was not strong enough for them to obtain an accurate reading, so they really couldn't figure out exactly where they were. This request was repeated a couple of more times uh, and would eventually actually be the last communications with this particular plane. Uh, now, due to strong headwinds, she was flying critically low, and what they defined as critically low is uh, at an altitude that left no room for error, only about 2,000 feet, hmm. which seems seems kind of high, but then again, you right. know, if you're relying on solely on your instruments, and it does say 3, 3 a.m., so she was flying in the dark. On December 28th, 1948, a Douglas DC-3 leaves San Juan for Miami. Uh, she disappeared 50 miles south of Florida. Weather was fine. Seas were calm. Absolutely, like, no weather issues whatsoever. Pristine conditions. Uh, the water in the area where she went down was shallow, so wreckage should have been seen. Hundreds of ships and planes combed the area, but no wreckage was ever found. Once again. January 17th, 1949, a plane called Star Ariel took off at 8.41 a.m. with seven crew and 13 passengers. Again, excellent weather. A pilot communicated to local airfields via radio at 9.42 to indicate a change in his radio frequency. I don't know why he would have done that. Uh, this was the final communication ever received from Star Ariel before eventually being reported overdue. Search planes followed the same exact route that she was documented to have followed. And never found any evidence that she had crashed. There was no debris, no nothing. October of 1954, Flight 441, a super constellation naval airliner disappeared with 42 passengers on board. She carried two powerful radio transmitters, but never sent out an emergency signal. No trace was ever found. To kind of interrupt you there, there is like almost any topic. There's a TV series or a YouTube channel <laughs> about it. However... There is a series that it's several years old now. It's called the curse of Bermuda triangle. And it is, um, a bunch of retired military that have kind of taken it upon themselves to, in their retirement years of living, just kind of investigate some of the various different accusations, if you will, of the Bermuda triangle. And in one of the series uh, episodes, I, I thought this was very interesting. They were going more present day and they went and talked to some of the, uh, still active captains. It was just literally like it down at a pub restaurant on the edge of the wharf. And they were asking some of their opinions. What do you think about this whole Bermuda Triangle thing? Do you think it's still real today? Do you think it's something that used to occur and doesn't? And all of them were like, oh, definitely. There, there's, there's stuff to this. And uh, they introduced him to a gentleman. And this would have been about, I want to say, 2015 time frame. Said, we just talked to a, a, another uh, captain who just had an event, like it was days before and they introduced him, got him together and they met with this guy and he seemed a, a reputable guy. He was a tourist captain. He would take people out, uh, across. And, uh, he said, we were out at night, you know, going across this area. He goes, I, I travel that three, four times a week. No problem. And he goes, I, for one had never had anything happen to me in this whole Bermuda triangle. I wasn't a believer at all. And he's, I've, you know, I've done this for 20 plus years. But he said on this particular night, um, he said we had about, he said eight passengers that was uh, on the ship uh, besides himself and said something come up underneath the boat. And he goes, for lack of a better term, something hit us. And he said, you know, we're out at the ocean. So, I mean, we turned the spotlights on and everything. At first they thought maybe it was a whale or something. However, they quickly discovered they were in three feet of water. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, not a whale. So they turned the spotlights on and everybody was kind of running to the side. You know, what was that? You know, kind of deal. No signs of anything. 
And with these like floodlights, it was almost like they saw a glowing orb that come up out of the water, almost like out of the ground beneath the water and said it zipped around, but like in a circular motion, circling it, the ship, like it was trying to understand. Now to our listeners, I'd like to point out that you were motioning with your hand there. <laughs> they didn't a, see that. On a purely audio format. So. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm, I'm horrible <laughs> about that. But so this thing, and they said it was about the size of a, a basketball. So not, not small, but not extreme. And said they shined the light directly at it and it began to like go back down in the water. It was almost like it had some type of intelligence about it. So they said this continued for uh, maybe six to seven minutes and said then the light just vanished. So they had the coordinates, you know, longitude, latitude. These guys quickly went out. It was about a six hour trip. Sure enough, they found the water levels ranged from three foot to four foot. And so they're trying to understand this. And so they turned their sonar on and they came across quite a surprise. While the water was three to four foot in most of this area, there was a huge, and I'm not really sure how to describe this, but a dugout basement-like room on the floor of the ocean. Oh. To put it in perspective, it was 45 foot long, 45 foot wide, and 30 feet deep. There was little to no debris left anywhere around. Like if you remove that much material, you would expect to see some of that material. The walls were almost perfectly straight and they have this on video. They were just blown away. What in the world is this? Obviously that's a pretty 45 foot by 45 foot by yeah. 30 foot deep. You could hide something pretty good sized in that. So they thought, well, maybe we're onto something with this sonar. So once again, they started talking to some of the captains. 300 miles away, another very similar lit orb type scenario. They went to investigate it. Again, 300 miles away from this location. The water here, however, was uh, 18 to 20 foot deep. But guess what they found with the sonar? Another room with the exact dimensions of 45 feet long, 45 feet wide, and 30 feet deep. With no debris, once again. Now, see, this is why, and I think we've described before our process, Eric and I always wanted this to be a conversation. Yes. So when we research what we're going to do, we very rarely talk to each other about what we're finding because we want there to be like a conversation. We want there to be moments of like, oh, I didn't know that. This, I did not find this. Oh, this my gosh. Weird. That's weird. Well, to take it a step further, uh, there, I mean, there's, there's the Debbie Doubters of the group. There's the full-blown UFO abduction believers of this group. They're like, okay, obviously this is not a natural formation with the walls being almost perfectly straight up and down. Odd that there was no debris. There was no remnants or side because they, they were scuba divers. Two of them were scuba divers. They went down. There's no concrete. There's no rebar. There's nothing looking. And yet you have these quote-unquote rooms. Yeah, underground basement, water house, whatever you want to call them. So they went to some of the uh, oil rig commercial diggers, and you know they thought, well, maybe this was something that would have been dug out, and you know maybe that would have been a poured uh, platform foundation to support a, a leg or, or something. And they both told them the same thing, especially in the three- to four-foot water. They said you couldn't even get the ships in place that would yeah. need to be there to dig 
dynamite explode that area because we're not talking dirt here. I mean, this is this is rock. And they said even in the eighteen to twenty foot water, there was very few of the ships that would have the ability to dig that out, and yet there was nothing recorded of what these would be here for. That is beyond odd. Yeah, that. But man, it goes back to the. Was it a, well, okay, maybe it's Atlantis, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe that was a portal, are, maybe that's a gate. The USO uh, hangers or something. Yeah, I, I'm again, a, we're not, This is that's a big room, 45 foot by 45 foot and 30 foot. And the fact that both of them were the same well, dimensions. And if you think about the amount of material that needs to be displaced, like you said, there should be. Yeah. You should have a mountain of, of something Where was somewhere. It? Where was There was nothing. So, yeah, that was one of the. Okay, this is really weird. Again, welcome to the Bermuda Triangle. Another story I had, um, and this I had to dig into a little bit more. I was a little confused with the title. They called it the parking lot. Have you heard the parking lot in the Bermuda Triangle? I can't say that I have. It was an interesting uh, play on words, so I thought, okay, well, what is this? It is um, right off the coast of Florida, and it is called the parking lot because it is quite often to find these ghost ships, and again, by definition, we just mean unmanned ships, yeah. are anchored often there or just floating there. This seems to occur to the point where, like, the marine guards and stuff, it's almost second nature. We went out there by the parking lot area, and there was a ship parked out there. Okay, yeah, it's it's another one we'll get out there and investigate. It, it's not even uncommon enough that it doesn't, like, oh, my goodness, you know, we're going to go out there immediately. Well, the 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 group pursued this. And we were talking about piracy a little bit ago. Piracy is still a thing. Uh, yeah. They, I mean, what, what is it where, um, that was, that was it the African country that they still have the active pirates? I mean, they made the movie about it and all that. So, yeah, I mean, it's still around. It's, it's changed a little bit and, you know, they don't walk with peg more, legs anymore. It's a little and, more technical these days. But this one man came forward, uh, refused to be shown on camera, distorted his voice. He's a modern day pirate. And he has said that he himself has acquired seven ships that was just left at the parking lot. And he goes over and he takes possession. He says, was he really a pirate at that point or is he a salvage guy? Well, here's where <laughs> the pirate comes in. Or did, or did he set it up to where those ships were? There? He obviously does not own the titles to said ships. So he has to sell them, let's say, south of the border a little bit and more unscrupulous buyers. There's, uh, well... Maybe this just comes from my time as a sci-fi person. I was going to say, are there salvage rules? Like if you find a ship unmanned, well, you can claim her? Uh, you, I mean, would, maybe, you would like to think. I don't know. You would like to in, think. In this day and age, maybe, yeah, somebody owns the title of that ship. So, But in a period of 15 years, he himself personally said, I have claimed, reclaimed, seven of these ships. And they said, well, what do you do with them? You know, And he got real kind of standoffish. And he says, well, I no longer have them. And you know, I, I sell them. He, he looked like he was doing pretty good for himself, <laughs> I will say. But yeah, he would take them and, and sell them. The thoughts were for probably for drug lords and stuff to, you know, jockey their, their wares across. But the weird part is he said, you know, a lot of times the keys are, are left in there. There's playing cards on the table. There's food and plates left on the table. Some of the ships are anchored. Some are afloat. Uh, you mentioned the, uh, the, the, the underground river, the, the currents and yeah. the toes. That area is very prone to that. They'd put out sensors and actually tracked it, and they went all like three sensors went three different, total different directions. So it could be pulling stuff. But you'd have to ask yourself you're on a ship, you're out here in the middle of the ocean. What would make you want to get off that ship? 
that area is also known to be shark-infested waters. That's not a good reason to get off the ship. Well, there's also a stretch of it. Was the Sargasso Sea, I think? There's a piece that's in the area of the region that's supposed to be very, very thick with uh, seaweed and kelp and whatnot. And in the early days of, of naval navigation, like they could actually get hung up. And I guess those seas are, are what you call becalmed quite often, which is just no wind, no nothing. They just dead still. Like the ocean looks like a pane of glass and you just sit there. So, but again, a modern vessel would have no problem passing through that. Right. Like she just powers on through. So now they did say, and I'm not sure how he acquired this information. But uh, one of the ships, he said he did hear a story about. Now, if this guy's coming up on the ships and there's nobody around, it kind of makes you wonder if he didn't have something to do with why these ships were here, to your point. But uh, he said that he had heard stories that we've got to throw the UFO aspect in here. I'm, I'm just going to drop that. A UFO, unidentified flying object, stopped above a ship and this bright beam of light shined down on it to the point it frightened the people to abandon ship. Maybe. And maybe the sharks ate them. Maybe the tide carried everything away. I, I, I don't know. But yeah, that's what the parking lot is that's off the coast of Florida. And it apparently is quite well known to, to natives there. Yeah, the whole, the whole 45 foot by 45 foot by 30 foot rooms. I, I couldn't get over that. that. That was just strange. Well, in closing, I was kind of going through some of the different vanishings of ships. And I came across one, the title of the newspaper really drew me into it. And that was witchcraft in the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, now we're talking, Let, let's dive into this. Well, it's not what you think it is. The witchcraft is, was a 23 foot long luxury cabin cruiser owned by a millionaire by the name of Barack. Uh, he was an owner of multiple hotels. He had inherited a hotel, uh, that later burned to the ground. I believe that was in Ohio. Um, he took that insurance money. Uh, went to Florida, bought up a large portion of beach, built another hotel complex, ended up flipping that within a matter of years, uh, some saying doubling or even tripling his financial worth. But on this night of December 22nd, this was in 1967, he invited uh, what was explained as a close friend, a Father Patrick Horrigan, a, a, a priest, uh, to go with him on his ship, the Witchcraft, a priest want to come on my ship named the witchcraft. Uh, and we're going to go out and look at Christmas lights for the houses and the richest districts basically here off the coast. And I guess this is, you know, we've talked growing up here in Missouri, yeah. our family used to drive around, look at Christmas lights and stuff. Well, I guess they, they do it by boat, you know, in, in that region. The plan was not to go too far. Instead, they just go offshore about a mile to what's called buoy number seven. They just kind of stopped the engine there and would enjoy the light, similar to what they do at Lake of the Ozarks on 4th of July with fireworks. Now, with the size of the ship, it is said that a mile off the coast, you could have physically seen the ship if it had been daylight. Uh, so, again, not very far off at all. The number seven buoy, however, is a little bit misleading. That's not just a normal buoy. This is the mouth of the largest port entry to Florida where the massive Caribbean cruise ships and all the cruise ships go in. This area was dug out to make it even deeper for that, you know, you know long, long time ago. But they uh, had left the Miami Yacht Marina that evening and everything was going well until about 9 p.m. when the Coast Guards received a call from Barack. Uh, he, he said, this isn't an SOS. Barack's voice was steady and calm. And he said that his boat seemed to have hit something. 
but it's not an emergency, he stated. He said his boat needed to be towed at that time, but they were not even a mile offshore. So basically, hey, got a little bit of an issue. It's not a rush. It's not a big thing, uh, but we need to tow. From the message, it was quite obvious that while there might have been some damages to the propeller and the rudder, the hull itself was surely intact. Well, even taking that a step further, this guy being a millionaire, had this ship especially built. And um, I hate to use the words unsinkable because we always think of Titanic. <laughs> But that's what uh, this ship was was literally advertised as. They lined it with expanding foam. So essentially, you could have cut this ship up in sections, and it would have floated. I mean, that's by design. Let's see. Barack again stated it's you know it's not an SOS, not an emergency, and he said uh, I'm I'm here by this buoy number seven. Well, that was quite a well known point. In 19 minutes, the Coast Guard arrives on the scene to the point where they had received and said the, the ship was, there was no sign whatsoever of the witchcraft. Neither did Barack. Uh, he didn't fire any flares, which he did mention in the original. He could fire flares when he saw the Coast Guard approaching. No flares were fired to indicate where he was. His voice was never heard again. They tried to raise him on the radio. No response. You know, that night, the Coast Guards continued the search of operations covering some 1,200 square miles of area in that spot. There was, again, no trace of the witchcraft or any of the two that were on board. So it is presumed literally it was only the priest and this millionaire. Now, you got to think, this is a millionaire. They're, this sounds horrible. They're probably going to look a little bit harder for him than they would you or I, you know, but on, a 1,200-square-mile radius, no sign. As I mentioned, the ship had been especially built, uh, expanding foam kind of stuff blown in. It speculated you know, what could have happened? Maybe this millionaire could have been running from people who maybe he owed money to. Maybe he wasn't as well off as what people thought. Um, maybe some of his reputation, the insurance was speculated that it could have been fraud. Maybe he was running from that. It's also speculated that um, maybe he and the priest were more than just good friends and they were trying to start a new life away. If it was just him wanting to disappear, though, why would you have the priest with you? Now you're you're complicating things. Why you're going to have to get two people sold into that? You're going to walk away from everything you know and you know never be seen again. The other is possibly pirates. Uh, again, a millionaire ship in that area. Obviously, I think his ship would have been pretty well known. It would have been easy to spot. Which is another whole kind of clincher in the deal. There was no spottings by anyone else out that night looking at Christmas lights that recognized seeing that ship, but possibly pirates could have boarded it and stolen it. However, it seemed more believable the concept that the ship simply never was there. Uh, obviously, with the radio systems, they could have been on their way to wherever and said they were at buoy marker number seven. But that was a story that got a lot of attention in 1967. Weird, unexplained events more on the Bermuda Triangle. Science can give us a number of reasons why ships might go missing in that region. There's even a story, an anecdote, that a couple of lighthouse keepers have, have disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle. So you have events on the ocean, in the air, and on the land. Statistics will tell you that that area of the ocean is no more or less dangerous than any other area. And based on the amount of travel in the region, they don't lose any more ships than anywhere else in the world. Right. Well, unlike the one captain they interviewed, I've been doing this for 20 years, never had anything weird happen to me. So 
What is it about the Bermuda Triangle? Why does it fascinate us? Why do we have all these stories, these unexplained disappearances? Is it Atlantis? Is it a portal to another dimension? Is it yeah, aliens? Who Some knows? giant sea creature? In closing, I will throw in one more little tidbit. November 2019, not all that long ago, the carcass of a 200-foot-long giant squid washes up in San Augustine, Florida. Wow. That's a sea monster. That pulls ship down. Uh, right there in the middle of the Bermuda Triangle. Well, folks, we hope you enjoyed this uh, episode of the weird events of Bermuda Triangle. It's yet just another example of what you'll find on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks so much for listening. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, Lebanon, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for again supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.